How now, you secret black and midnight hags? Welcome to a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying the return of Cohen Brothers Brothers. I'm one of the brothers, Michael Swain. And I'm Abe Epperson. The other brother. The other brother? Cuz? From another... My what? beloved cuz. Oh, yeah, they cousins. call each other cuz in this, yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's true. We're talking Shakespeare. We're talking Shakespeare, specifically the tragedy of Macbeth, as done by Joel Cohen, which I guess means only one of us should talk. Yes. <laughs> like Ethan. Yeah, whoever was the Ethan guy. Now gone. we have to decide who's Ethan and who who's Joel. That's true. Question for the audience in your head right now, when you think of Ethan Cohen. Which one is it? Do you think of Abers or do you think of the Swamerang? But that's right. We are bringing back Coen Brothers Brothers temporarily. We thought it did behoove us to covereth thine. All right, I'm losing it. But uh, yeah, we're talking the tragedy of Macbeth. Um, yeah. Adapted and it's to the welcome screen. Back. And directed by Joel Cohen. Go ahead. Welcome back into the seat, Cohen Brothers Brothers, right? That's pretty cool. New intro. Back I mean, it's not new, but feels new. It's, I just want to take a moment and say, like, cool that we do this. It is. We're very cool. We thought Thank we were you. done when we did, what was the Buster final Buster Scruggs. One? No, no, before that, uh, Hail Caesar. I thought we were done when we did Hail Caesar. Then Buster Scruggs landed in our laps, and we, we did that, and now... We've decided to go ahead, even though only one of the brothers is involved, because this really does feel Cohen-y, uh, yeah. and we'll get to that. We'll get to why, but there's some stuff we have foregone, like Suburbicon and Crime Wave and stuff, because they were it's not directed. producers, and it, it may have had a Cohen vibe, but it wasn't really part of their canon. Even though Ethan was not directly involved, this has your Francis McDormand in it. It has the kind of care around it that a Cohen thing usually has, the kind of minimalist feel. So uh, we thought this was worthwhile, uh, and we hope we, we do. you do too. And as always, we're covering the film through three spectra. Diegesis, pedagogy, and howdy do that. And howdy uh, hey, let's dive right in. Abe, I yeah. studied Shakespeare quite a bit at UCSD and uh -huh. uh, wrote sort of a lot of the lines from the play in my notes. Mm -hmm. You said you did more informal Cliff's notes. So why don't you start us off with diegesis? Because <laughs> I think it'll be funnier that way. Yeah, no, I got, <laughs> I, I watched it. And, mm -hmm. and I'm smart. I love Shakespeare. No, I'm just kidding. I actually, Shakespeare's good. It's good. I'm just not that super versed in it. I studied it. I have like average Shakespeare sense. I okay. did some plays, you yeah. know. And anyway, really, it's on the actors and the director. Like, I, I would say part of the challenge of engaging with Shakespeare's work is it should be clear to the audience because of your choices that you your dramaturgical choices so if mm -hmm. abe sounds dumb it's joel cohen's fault it's there you go <laughs> so the three ravens All are right, circling yeah. so, in so what do we think Macbeth so we is start about? off with a shot of three ravens kind of orbiting a central circle uh of void space everything mm -hmm. is foggy mm -hmm. uh and it marks as we learn in the sequence that the 
the three witches are flying above the desert and a captain from a battle walks across like, or it's a desert or it's a beach. Maybe it's a beach because I think it's Norway, right? Loose sand. It's just an expanse of sand. sand. Yeah. Yeah, And uh, this captain is arriving at Duncan's camp and Duncan is king of Scotland. Uh, He tells Duncan that Macbeth won a battle for him against like a Norwegian Lord. And he was super good at it. Like, he killed him really well. Uh, so far, he, so good, dude. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm just waiting for you to be like, oh, boy. Uh, then this character, Ross, it's a cool name. I had uh, to actually look that up. I was finally like, they never named this dude. Who is this dude? Who's yeah, that dude? Ross. I remember Ross. Uh, Ross arrives and tells him that, like, more exposition. Norway is, like, running away. He says we were the- on a break. We're, yeah. And the king's and like, I get it. That's good. I get it. And he's like, this dude, the one of your thanes, the thane of Cordor, was straight up a traitor. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, but you know what? Basically, the war's basically won. Just want to let you know that information. And we found the traitor, by the way. And Duncan says to Ross, yes, nice. <laughs> Give the traitor's lands to Macbeth. I love that guy. And then they look at the ravens again and like, you know cool ravens (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and then something that happens a lot in this movie which is that we do continuity cuts of some of either sound of like shape or of motion and in this case it's literally the same thing because we cut to the ravens overhead and then we go down to what the ravens are looking at and it's an old woman who we learn is like the witch and it's like this is all in black and white, but like it's at this point, everything is encased in fog. It's like an Igmar Bergman null space. Mm-hmm. Like it's this weird, everything was done on a soundstage, but you really are starting to see that every scene is like completely a new blank slate. And it gives this really surrealist feeling to it, which really plays to the scene because it's literally about magic. She's definitely Watch a counselor. Part... This is pedagogy territory. That's true. <laughs> she's basically like part crow. Yeah, there's a crow lady. Let's just she's yeah, a crow that's, lady. That's what's really going on. And she on. talks to her sisters slash herself slash crows slash her reflection. Uh, Slash your reflection about meeting up when the hurly dur- hurly burly's done. I think that's what she says. That's the right? line you latched on. That's to. the line. Yeah, yeah, okay, and basically saying like shit's about to go down, so let's do our fate thing, uh, and do some magic and you know fuck up the place. Don't really know what they're up to. Just know that they they work for fate, uh, or they have some reverence towards fate. Macbeth and Banquo arrive and are immediately like, whoa, what the hell is that? And they discuss if they're crazy for a bit because she's really weird, or maybe she's just crazy and they might, and sometimes crazy people are connected to gods. So that, who can say, basically? Like, it might be, this might be for real, this might be nonsense and she goes on to tell Macbeth a prophecy that causes the entire play and there's a beautiful shot that you alluded to of a pond where she stands where in front of the actor who's playing the witch are two versions of herself in the reflection upside down making for the three sisters even though it's all one woman in this version basically so you get the feeling she's three people Mm -hmm. and she has three voices when she talks two of them talk together at the same time uh, one of the things she says is that he'll became, become the Thane of Cordor, and he's already the Thane of Gloms? 
Gloms. G-L-A-M-I-S, but it's called, it said Gloms. Gloms. She says he'll be Thane of Cawdor and King hereafter. And then Banquo goes, well, can I get a little prophecy since you're giving out these prophecies? (laughs) And she says, you'll be lesser than Macbeth, but greater. You'll be sadder, but happier. Damn. You shall beget kings, but you shall be none. You'll have a line of kings. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, how do you know all this stuff? Uh, and that's she when the witches choose away, to just dude. dip. <laughs> We're <Yeah>. out of here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, Bye. and then, out of the uh, out of the obscurity of the fog, comes back at him as crows. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, and the last line is Banco is like, I think we're high. Something, right? Yeah, he says, have we fed upon like, the root pro- that makes men insane? <laughs> yeah. Probably I. We're yeah, probably yeah. just high, dude. And then title card, the tragedy. Title of card. Out of the title card comes. Ross again, who is amazing in this film with his ability to glue. travel. Really gets stuff done. Yeah, he really connects stuff. all the dots, yeah. literally. Like, he's connecting all of the auxiliary characters. Uh, Ross informs Macbeth that he just got back from the king. King's very happy. You're the thing of Corridor, by the way. And I brought the old one. Do you want to murder him? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, Basically... Macbeth is like, nah. Uh, and he goes off instead, even though, yeah, the, that thing is done. But he's also and, like, oh, this means the prophecy and, yeah, has merit. Th- this is where we learn that Macbeth speaks to himself, like a lot of Shakespeare characters, sure. speaks up to himself. And he's like, how is this true? Like, I just heard this story from that crazy ra- raven lady. Um, anyway, Mac- Macbeth, like... Immediately takes this as a sign to like go to Banquo and he's like, so we, the thing we saw immediately just became true. Mm-hmm. Banquo's like, well, the prophecy, prophecy is like a crazy thing. Uh, it can be said by evil people. Um, he says, and also um, we don't know what it means all the time. The ill may will us to harm with the commencement of a truth. So like, you know, the devil might cite scripture for his purpose, meaning I got oh, it. Like, be careful yes. there. The prophet just it. because it's a prophecy doesn't mean it's going to be good. Careful what you wish for. Careful what you wish. But for. you can tell Macbeth is already tempted by the idea of well, she said. I'd be king. That would be pretty sweet. That's and dope. he says, um, you know, we can't really say the vision's evil because I forget his act, but he says it, it cannot be ill and it cannot be good. And he does this little logic yeah. dance where he basically justifies to himself. I don't think that chick was evil. I think it's good. I th- I'm I think it's choose good. To this believe, sounds good. Yeah, this sounds yeah. good to me. And so he says, come what come may, which is one of the first yeah. things that my high school brain was like. That's a line. That's a line from Macbeth. From Macbeth. Mm-hmm. We cut to intro, Lady Macbeth. Ah, the crowd goes wild. It's Frances McDormand. Uh, she's reading Macbeth's letter about the battles and the hurly burly. Lady Macbeth is like real into Macbeth gaining power. Like she reads it like a lover receiving poetry, right? And then she burns the letter because um, the prophecy because has to be she, a secret. Yeah. She confides to us that she got an, she got this idea that can make Macbeth like king because Duncan's straight up kind of a shitty king. Brennan Gleeson. Throws the, and she's like, okay, so now there's literally a paper trail. So that's why she burns burn it. But she's also reveal, says yeah. in her aside that she's concerned. Her fear is that 
she, you know, her husband's a man that of great stature. She thinks he deserves to be king, but he's quote mm. too full of the milk of human kindness to take the closer way. Meaning, so she's even harder. She's like, we could be king and queen tomorrow if we murder the king. But I'm worried yeah. that my husband, and of course, this is supported by doesn't the fact, have the stuff. We just saw him refuse to execute someone, and she's like, that he's a pussy. He's not going to do it. Yeah, what needs like, be doing? So she she mercurial commits herself to pouring herself in his ear, which means telling him stuff. Mm. I'm going to tell mm. him stuff another. and get him to do it. That's another line. I'm mm. like, hmm. Mm, it's beautifully written yeah. by some some guy. Some uh, guy. That's up for some debate. Guy. <laughs> uh, I also love, uh, and this is Joel Cohen, throwing the letter as it burns into the stars. Yeah. You see like a star field. And then we cut to, once again, continuity cuts, the same stars we pan down and Duncan is in thought. And the I just want to point out and plot. that the, because there's so much play with pure black and pure white in this movie, mm-hmm. and this is kind of pedagogy, but I'll forget it otherwise. To me, the burning letter flying up in the sky really looks like the negative inverse image of the crow flying through the sky, which is so fucking cool. That's pretty <laughs> I don't know dope, what it means. Dude. It's just cool. Yeah. That's I guess pretty they're both fucking dope. instruments of fate, so I do know what it means. Yeah. And it's a, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, and the king yeah, says, I'm, a, uh, "I'm amped, dude. Shakespeare's dope, <laughs> Shakespeare's uh, good, man." The king's dude. like, uh, "What's the what's the sit rep?" Um, yeah, Malcolm, his D- son. Ross has teleported, by the way, for the first time <laughs> from a meeting with Macbeth, literally in this scene, and then we cut to his camp, and there's apparently like at least a night away, so he is riding most of this movie. Apparently. Ross is nightcrawler. Of the Ross Mac- is bamfing Booker, left yeah. and right across Scotland, and he says, uh, you know, the Thane of Cawdor took the execution well, like he begged for his life and repented and all the stuff you want before you kill a traitor. And the king says, well, he was a gentleman and I had, you know, it's a shame we had to execute him, but Mm -hmm. I'm happy that Macbeth and Banquo did a good job. Then they arrive. The king Mm -hmm. says, you know, I owe you guys. I owe you more than all can pay. You're my favorites. I'm going to give you lands. (laughs) Kind of foreshadows trust as a flaw of Duncan. Like he's Mm -hmm. like, I don't know why that guy turned on me. I love this guy too. This dude's awesome. He's like within the same breath. Duncan's very trusting. Yeah. He says, I have begun to plant thee and will labor to make thee full of growing. So, Mm. you know, I think Shakespeare was trying to set up that Macbeth was going to How come you never say that to me? (laughs) I will try to make thee full of growing. Uh, Macbeth was going to have a good life anyway. So he's really right. overreaching. Like, there's no need for him to do this. He's greedy. Overreaching he's is... Mm, yeah. Mm, that's a Coen Brothers word. Anyway. Oh, yeah, someone overreaching. That is... Yeah. I mean, that... I guess we'll talk about that in pedagogy, but you wonder why yeah, he picked will. Macbeth of all the plays he could have adapted. Of all the ones, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's very Coen Brothers-esque. Uh, King also uh, announces, we will establish our estate upon our eldest Malcolm, um, basically saying, I chose which of my sons... Malcolm and Dunsinane, and he goes, Malcolm is cool. He's going to be king next, okay? Thus it shall be. <laughs> and Macbeth leaves and mutters to himself, oh, Malcolm. I love Malcolm, that. Malcolm is now a step I must or come or, or leave. Yeah, I love that. He's immediately like, I don't want to do this crime. Oh, I have to fucking kill Malcolm now. Yeah. Like, I love that he teeters in this phase. Uh, and Denzel Washington's doing like such a good job of like keeping that fury bottled up all the time. Yeah. Stars hide thy fires. Let not light see my black and deep desire. So 
In his heart of hearts, he does want to be king. He thinks he deserves it. He can convince himself that he should be king. But he doesn't, he's not sure about all this murder stuff. <laughs> That's basically what he, where he's yeah, at right now. Yeah, I mean, which is, uh, like, Lady Macbeth is reading him like a book. Mm -hmm. I mean, his wife, so she knows. Yep. Um, yeah. Back to Lady Macbeth, who's Back made... to Lady Macbeth, and tell us, because this is a famous mm -hmm. one, right? For most people have heard the unsex me here. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, she does Speech. a little monologue and prays that evil spirits will come and make thick her blood and turn her boob juice into gall, which is like And why bile. is that? She, <laughs> she's like, come, <laughs> Satan, make my breast milk bile, because uh, yeah. only through cruelty can we achieve our fell purpose. Um, so basically, she is admitting to herself that... Take away my humanity. Which right? I think is the real social commentary that... Shakespeare's mm -hmm. trying to pull here, which is to become president, you have to be kind of shitty and do evil stuff, right? So she's yeah. mentally preparing herself for that. Uh, and of course, this yeah. is, it was another time. So this is, so it's gendered. She's like, make me a man because men are associated with the ability oh, to see, I read cruelty. it Interesting. Or I, make that's me also gender how neutral. I was taught. Make me but then as I maybe. read the play again, you know, like I, I want to say in college-ish times. Yeah, mm -hmm. in college. Like, I was like, the unsex me to me. I mean, that's probably what he meant. But I like that reading just because it's like, make me not a human. Make me not a huma human kind of situations like gender like or sex too. right right I, that's a better read to like make me a demon make me something that has no gender mm -hmm. um but yeah i think that probably shakespeare was like women are you know not women so are good so women are soft yeah. men are hard she's trying to be yeah, hard. yeah. he's probably yeah. thinking that it's basically the movie get hard the yeah. kevin hart uh will. yeah that's right yeah you just like just step up <laughs> And you can survive this prison, which mm -hmm. is us becoming king and queen. Yeah, you got it. He comes home. She advises him to look like the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it. And several other metaphors. Oof. But all the metaphors. Beautiful, mean... though, because you imagine yeah. the you imagine the like the lines of the shapes of the snake and the flower. It's true. Like the but stem. They're, they're all basically she's just telling him, man up. We're going to kill the king. Are you ready? Man up. We got to kill the king. Yeah. You better be ready. <laughs> Joel Cohen is really good without <laughs> Ethan Cohen. <laughs> So they're going to bide their time, look for their opening, and uh, Duncan arrives to visit. How convenient. <laughs> the king comes to visit and get drunk at their house and sleep. This is, all right, uh, I want to see if I, this one was a tough one for me because I don't remember the scene at all, mm -hmm. and I tried to listen, and I listened to it without subtitles, mm -hmm. and I was like, I'm trying to figure out what they're talking about here. So can I take a crack at it? Go for it. So Duncan arrives with his entourage, right? And he just talks about how cool the castle is. Like, I like the castle. And then Lady Macbeth greets them. They pay respects. And, like, I believe, again, I'm trying to remember the lines, but, like, I get the gist, right? Like, what I think of, and this is very Shakespearean to me, because, like, I hear stanzas, length of words, mm -hmm. and then... I love how Shakespeare, it just comes down to like something like, hey, I'm the king and we're probably following Macbeth and thought we could catch up to him 
uh, as like a thing, like a deal. But he rides really fast, probably because he wanted to return to the castle to like quickly to fuck. Right? Is that what? He get, is that why he was so fast? Did you guys fuck? Is that what like Duncan's asking yeah, here? Yeah, Duncan's saying, uh, I thought that we would catch up with Macbeth on the way here. But Macbeth rode so fast that he's clearly already here. He must love you a lot. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, love yeah. spurred him on. And it's <laughs> yeah. just a There's little a foreshadowing that, just that like, we're like, nah, yeah. his ambition spurred him on because he had to come make secret schemes with Lady Macbeth. Right, right. And then we go see him by himself, muttering to himself, as all Shakespearean characters do, and mm-hmm. saying that if it right? were done when tis done, then as well it were done quickly. Um so, right. uh, and also he worries about how evil can beget evil. What if it begets evil against me? I'm doubly betraying. Blood begets blood. Like yeah. Duncan trusts me so much, both as a host who's supposed to not kill He's your guests. He's bad about it. He does a little pro-con work. As his know? loyal soldier. Yeah. So he talks it through and basically tells himself, you know, I he, he lists all his fears. I'll go down in history as a traitor and a bad man, blah, blah, blah. But mm. in the end, he says, I can't deny my own vaulting ambition. So he's going to go. F- he teeters back and forth several times. But at this moment, he's like, all right, we're doing it. We're killing the king. We're going to go for yeah. it. And then Lady Macbeth comes in and is like, you're acting weird. The party's been going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she says, you have to step up. Wouldst thou not let thy acts match thy desires? Uh, and he says, I dare do all that a man may do. Who does more is none. Like if I do this, I won't be a man I respect anymore. And she says, which is hardcore. You right. Sh- I want to know says, what this meant. A man does what he vows to do. And in your letter last night that I got, you said you wanted to do this. You can't back out now. If I had a baby sucking on my breast Right. And I had said, I'll kill the baby. Then I would kill that baby. I would dash its head against the wall. So she's basically saying you were basically baby killing serious when you talked about it in your letter. Yeah. And it's not evil. He says, I won't be a man if I do this. And she says, well, to be a man is to fulfill your word. And basically she's saying no backsies. You said you would kill the king. Yeah, now kill yeah. the fucking she king. She also uses the word courageous, which becomes a little important in another. In yeah, like fix the your next courage scene. to the sticking place. Yeah, courage is how is another way of saying be a man. Um, be is a be man. courageous. And he says, "Boy, I bet when you have babies, you will birth nothing but males because you're yeah. so h- hardcore. It's dense with like <laughs> it's just dense with l- gender shit. <laughs> just like let's get these male babies going. Yeah." Or kill them or whatever, but and let's they, talk babies. And they describe the details of their plan, which is she's going to mm-hmm. drug the wine, get everyone dead asleep. Then he's going to kill Duncan and he's going to put the daggers in the hands of Duncan's groomsmen so that it looks, so it looks like, like they, they killed him. Yeah. yeah. Even though that is like a silly thing, but we'll talk. That's pretty fine. simple plan for <laughs> pretty the simple time. plan. Yeah. The scene ends with one of the cooler lines that I always recall when I think of Macbeth, which is false face must hide what false heart doth know, mm-hmm. uh, which is just kind of cool. It's like, right? we got to Oh yeah. And she says like, and then you got to act really sad when you find his body. Remember you got like, to that's the out. important part. And that's yeah. like kind of the, for here on in for people who don't remember Macbeth, that becomes like the big problem is that they're acting weird. Right, their guilt starts getting to him. So then, and they lose their minds. Banquo arrives because he's also coming to visit, and he has his son mm-hmm. with him, his son Fleance, and mm-hmm. he confides in his son that he's worried about the prophecy, and he's worried what'll it do to Macbeth? What'll and like, 
he worries for Duncan and he worries for mm-hmm. everyone and he just feels like there's danger on the breeze or whatever. Macbeth overhears and walks in and it's a little awkward because he's obviously <laughs> he's lying like, to Banquo. Oh, I notice you have a boy. Yeah, and he's like, you know, I keep thinking about the weird sisters and their vision. It's pretty fucked up, right? And Macbeth does a pretty bad job of lying because he goes like, Oh, I haven't thought about that at all. Yeah. No, that's interesting. <laughs> what are you talking about? I didn't just become staying a corridor. Anyway, we should repose. Let's repose. Yeah. What's up with your kid? I'm thinking about him. I might have to kill you later. Uh, yeah, that's basically what's going on in his head. It's just a, a tumultuous little spin that's going on in Macbeth's yeah. brain. Yeah. I also love the little touch of, I like the way that Joel Cohen did it too, is that he wouldn't have announced himself, but a servant arrives with a torch and Macbeth has to reveal himself because the light is now. So we have this interplay once again, you know, look back to your high school, uh, light versus dark. That's just what it, it's light reveals things. Darkness obscures them. When you're making a black and white movie, it's one of the few. <laughs> like, what are you going to do? Things you got. What are you going to yeah. not do light versus dark as a visual and I think, strategy? Uh, and as we'll talk about, I think Cohen does a little bit more, but yeah. here we go. Uh, then Macbeth has a famous scene where he has a vision of a dagger floating in the air. And it basically- It's pretty cool. I've never seen it staged like I this. I haven't seen it staged this way and it fucking rules. The way it's staged it, is he walks slowly down a corridor- And he sees a dagger floating in the air. And in the play, it's just, he just talks about- He's losing his mind. He's losing his mind and seeing a dagger. And then he pulls out a dagger and kills the king. In this, the dagger is literally just the way the light is shaped, is like reflected off the shape of a door handle. And it's the door to the room Duncan's in. So he like- sees a dagger floating in the darkness and walks toward it. And he's just walking towards it, which is the yeah. one path he has. It's everything is corridors in this film as well. Getting a little into pedagogy, but still like, it's just a beautifully done scene on a scene that has been done many, many times. And mm-hmm. it's as far as I'm aware, one of the one that people look to in terms of interpretations in the theater, just because it's one of the first big offers. It's the first time that he's hallucinating. Yeah, is actually visually hallucinating. And you have to you know, that's a big threshold. Uh, and he to says, to like, a theater audience, either my eyes have failed and all my other senses should be trusted or my eyes are better than all my other senses because they alone tell me there's this dagger floating in the air. And in most stage productions I've seen. They don't like drop a floating dagger into shot, you know, because that would be stupid. Yeah. They just Ooh. have the actor talk about, I see a dagger. I see but a dagger. This, is this he a dagger? literalized yeah. it, which is great. And he goes. And when uh, at mm-hmm. the end he grabs the handle and it looks like a dagger. It looks like his hand like is taking li- a dagger. Taking he's the hilt. And yeah. he says, uh, just <clears throat> as the bell strikes, as the clock strikes midnight, he passes over the threshold. And of course, metaphorically passes over a threshold from which he can't return. And says, hear not the bell, Duncan, for it is a knell that summons thee to heaven or to hell. Like, and the middle of the night is arguably, even though they have that phrase, it's darkest before the dawn, mm-hmm. which is not true. In Shakespeare, it's typically midnight is the darkest time. Yeah. Which is, yeah. So most productions don't show the murder, but because it's a film, not a play, we get to actually do the action scenes, got, which is you dope. Brandon Gleason yeah. being Duncan. And Denzel Washington being Macbeth, you you, you do it. Why not? So we literally see him uh, brutally kill the king who 
dies horribly. Ooh, it's brutal. Blood sprays on Denzel's face like teardrops. Uh, it's obvious symbolism, but it's good. Uh, mm-hmm. And then Lady Macbeth realizes it's midnight and is sort of like, oh, it, it's the time. He must have done it. Oh, I It was bet- the owl that screeched. She questions like, oh, I bet he didn't do it. Maybe he did do it. Um, and says that she succeeded in her part. She drugged the servants. Macbeth comes in and is mostly worried about the state of his soul because he's like, I did it, man. I killed the king. I'm a bad man. Yeah. Oh. And he's like- um, I heard the drunk guys saying a prayer and it's traditional after that prayer to say amen. And I tried to say amen and I couldn't. And it I got caught in my yeah. throat. Does that mean I'm damned? Am I damned to hell? And she goes, none of that shit matters. Shut up. Did you frame the guys? And he goes, no, I was too scared. I just came back here. And no, she goes, heard, yeah. give me the fucking daggers. I'll fucking do it. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, no, I heard. And I also heard someone say, like, sleep no more. And what the fuck does that mean? Right. Uh, and he said, yeah, as, Macbeth has murdered sleep. Gloms has murdered sleep. And I shall sleep no more. Yeah. Uh, basically uh, like, saying I feel I feel guilty. But also saying, like, maybe I'm never going to sleep again. Right. Um and Lady Macbeth says, you know what, you just got to wash up and I'll take care of this. I'll take the dagger back to the crime scene. And in and one of my favorite images in the whole play. She gets blood on her hands. Well, she gets blood on her hands. And I know the famous line later that refers to that, of yeah. course. But I actually really prefer Macbeth's line about blood on the hands where he says when he's washing his hands. Neptune. Could Neptune's entire sea wash my hands? No. Yeah. The hand would turn the sea red before it would become clean. No amount of water could clean this. Unforgiven. Yeah. Like, you can't go back from yeah. murder. Yeah. Yeah. It's That's a dope line. That's a dope line. It is very I, I also love that Cohen... Uh, cuts from the knocked over washing basin. The he knocks over the washing basin and a fit of rage, uh, yeah. And the dripping of the water are is in time with the sounds of the knocking that have started, which is a new hallucination for Macbeth. He thinks it's something. Something is knocking. He hears something the knocking like, of fate. Maybe it's coming Duncan for him or, or fate. Yeah. Uh, but they he does this. This is a very complex thing. It reminds me a lot of a lot of maneuvers in Barton Fink. Uh, but it's just, I just, so we can talk about it later. We see dripping water mm-hmm. t- timed with the sounds of knocking. And then it does another continuity cut, which is means that we have an insert of something and we think it's at the end of one scene, but it's actually at the beginning of a new scene. And we see water dripping from last night's rain, uh, as we like, you know, size up Dolly back, look at Steven Root, who plays the character of Porter. Yeah, he made it in. Pan shot. Yeah. He made it yeah. in, you guys. So Steven Root is a, is a servant, and he gets woken up by, and it's a perfect continuity cut, because in his mind, the dripping water is loud and annoying because he's super hungover. He's drunk. Yeah, he's so hungover, yeah. he also hears the knocking, but it means something else for him. It just means, oh, noise. Oh, man. Also, he's not hallucinating. It's actual knocking. Right. And it's McDuff. Oh, yeah, man. So that transition works on like four levels. Um, It's literally someone knocking on the door. So he's like, fuck my head. And he doesn't. And what what is what do the Porter and McDuff talk about in that scene? They talk about the nature of like not being like not being in control of your senses. Oh, yeah, that's true. Um, So because they're basically like, like, why is everyone in disarray? Where the fuck were you? We've been knocking for an hour. Yeah. And he does a little funny monologue about 
all, he's basically the fool of this play. Right. Uh, so and they does, just let him go. Does a little riff, a little stand-up type five on all like, the yeah. funny things that booze does to you, right? And it you back take in the day, they're just senses. like, "Oh, we got a Robin Williams. Let's just let him out and do some." Yeah. stuff. Yeah, he goes. It, it provokes the desire for lechery, but it takes away the performance, makes a man stand to and not stand to. And otherwise, in other Butters. words, he's like, "Isn't it funny how booze makes you want to fuck, but it, you can't get your dick hard when you're too drunk?" Yeah. Uh, that was yeah. that was a very clever observation in Shakespeare's day. That uh, it still is, as still far as I'm is. concerned. And he leads them down the hall to Macbeth. That's true. Boners, who, that's true about boners. Who welcomes uh, Shakespeare new boners, man. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, he, he's described so many aspects of what a boner is of like. Of boners, yeah. yeah. God, um, Macbeth welcomes the guests, and they're like, well, where's the king? And he's like... I, I don't know. I think he's still asleep. I don't, I don't know. Why are you asking stirring? me? Yeah, he's probably stirring left and right, dude. Yeah. Uh, I just haven't heard him yet. Anyway, did you see the bad weather last night? They literally talk about the, uh, like his uh, McDuff's, like, probably cousin. Older another thing is like, uh, bad omens last night. But yeah. <laughs> and he's like, weird. I don't know what you're talking about, man. <laughs> and he's Everything like, McDuff is here. like checking up on the king. McDuff screams. The king is dead. He found the guard sleeping in the dagger there, as you'd expect. Yep. Uh, Macbeth kill walks up and sees the knife sees the guards who are kind of coming to mm-hmm. and he basically just grabs this the knife that he killed duncan and slices one of the guards throats and stabs the other in the back and then Meanwhile, says uh, a line i want to call out from this instant yeah. there's nothing serious in mortality all is but toys which is a real turning mm. point for Macbeth. it's like now i've mm-hmm. committed i like i fought in battles before but now that i'm just a cold-blooded murderer everything seems unreal to me in a way. And I think Denzel really hammers this Like from this point forward in the play, he's almost detached in a weird way. He's almost like the prophecy is the prophecy. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I'll kill whoever I need to. Fuck it. Yeah. Yeah. Even even when he goes to ask the fates later, he's like in autopilot. Detached it's great. in it's a way, great. yeah. Yeah, which is not when you go to the fates. It's like, you know, you're asking for it's a little fortune. Late. Yeah. It's a little late if you're like resigned to whatever it's going to tell you. Anyway, really good stuff. Shakespeare, uh, how come we don't hear a lot about him? McDuff does ask him, <laughs> so, uh, yo, why'd you kill the only two suspects who could have been yeah. witnesses to the murder? And he's like, I was overcome by rage. That makes sense, right? Yeah. That's believable. I mean, Duncan's <laughs> golden blood lay you know, upon like his silver li- pillow. Yeah, yeah. He like uh, he builds him up. He says, "I love the guy so much, man." And uh, Malcolm hears it as well. Malcolm, his little uh, Duncan's son. son. Yeah. Um. So yeah, Malcolm yeah. and his brother Donald Bain quickly Donald decide. Bain. They basically decide. Look, if there's a plot against our family, they're going to mm-hmm. come for us next. So let's flee to England and Ireland, respectively, so we're not even together, so it's even harder to kill us both. And we'll figure out what's up, and whoever did this will come back and we'll kill them. I love that, too. I love it. They're just like... Uh, England? Let's cheese it to England, Let's do dude. it. Yeah. Let's cheese it. Uh, Ross, also, once again, creepy, looks on as they're having this conversation. So he is already in on all the politics. I literally Googled... And I don't know if there's a clear answer to this. If you're really a Shakespeare buff, let us know. What is Ross's motivation from his own point of view? It's not clear to me who Ross is loyal to, if anyone, 
Or does Ross simply serve whoever's in power and just like, is he Varys from Game of Thrones? Yeah, that I was didn't get Ross's a little deal. unclear to yeah. me as well. Yeah. Um, it's the one part that I never he understood, seems, even in he watching seems it. Pretty, he seems to be playing both sides, but he's very clearly, uh, well, I mean, like 80% of the time. He's Macbeth's man. He knows. He's Macbeth's. He just does what Macbeth says. Yeah. But then at the and end. And he doesn't fight him. Well, we'll get there. Yeah. Weird. Yeah, we'll get there. Um, so anyway, they have a little aside where people talk about how, oh, they fled. That probably means they did it. Malcolm and Dunson, Donald Bain. I'm sorry, I said mm. Dunson. I think it's Donald Bain. Whatever. Donald the two Bain sons, they're like, <laughs> yeah. they probably did it. Uh, they flee. That That's as good as confessing. So we may yeah. as well make Macbeth king. And Macbeth is like, oh, okay. That's what people are saying. All <laughs> yeah. the people are saying Macbeth's king. And so he's like, oh, okay. Anyway, Macduff is like, anyway, cousin, I'm going to go back to our home. Uh, mm-hmm. Ross is like, I'm going to stay. And then Ross hears... Uh, the voice of the witch, who whom he has not met, and is also an old man. Uh, that was a choice. It's a choice. That's a to choice. Make, it's just, I think, you can I make believe in the anybody. play, it's just an <laughs> right. old man. Right. Yeah. But it was an interesting choice that Joel makes the old man played <clears throat> by the witch. Specifically played by the witch, yeah. yeah. But uh, the old man basically is there to give something that Shakespeare does a lot too, uh, which is to just... Tell a little small vignette story uh, to mimic the whole. And in the story he tells, or she tells, is that last night shit was fucked up. They discuss like nighttime, daytime makes like, there's this whole analogy about like, they're talking about light and dark about how daytime always makes you see the guilt, but like nighttime is where all the deeds are done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, uh, the old man tells a story of a falcon getting killed by a hawk i believe because it's like an usurpation no vice like versa it, that the vice versa a hawk a mousing owl on kills top a hawk a mousing is killed owl by, kills a hawk yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and this made this was unnatural and the best and one just is, last tuesday the uh-huh. horses in this particular case with the hawk and the falcon the horses of Duncan's army went wild and ate each other. The horses ate each other. That's my favorite, mm. dude. That is a bad omen. If the horses that is a eat bad each omen. other, yes. horses just suddenly like turn to each other and like, let's just fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's go. Because they saw, you know, a falcon kill yeah, a hawk. The king is uh, dead. That's, right. that's how nature works sometimes. Um, but in this case, obviously it's an analogy for, overreaching of Macbeth to kill Duncan causing chaos. Scotland to just become, uh, you yeah. know, become thrown chaos. into confusion. Yes. Um, Banquo, I believe. Yeah. Okay. So then mm-hmm. the sky is covered by a black cloud, the ultimate symbol of bad omen, right? A black cloud covering our mm-hmm. vision and that there's a clank and it, the, where the sun was becomes a white spotlight. And we realize we're looking down at, literally mm-hmm. a stage with a spotlight on it and Banquo's, of light. Yeah. Banquo steps out and monologues directly to camera and basically just explains that he suspects that Macbeth killed Duncan but he's not sure but he suspects and he wonders how is it possible he's like okay it would make sense that Macbeth killed Duncan because of that prophecy we both heard but I wonder mm-hmm. what that means for me because they said that I will sire kings but I won't be king does that mean Macbeth's going to kill me? Does that mean my son's going to be king? How's this all going to work out? Um, mm-hmm. Kind of a recap for the audience if like you weren't paying attention. Another interesting thing about Shakespeare was it was considered more... It's more analogous to TV than it was to film. 
Like if you went and saw it in Shakespeare's day, there would be breaks. There would be people selling trinkets and snacks and shit. You would mill around and wander around. So a lot of Shakespeare plays have moments where a character comes out and goes like, if you're just joining us, this is what's happening so far. Previously on. Yeah. And this is yeah. one of those. Uh, he also spikes camera when he says he's talking about all like specifically about like, will he be the father of many kings? Uh, mm -hmm. And he says that set me up with hope and he spikes camera. And I think that just means he's basically hopeful that that's true. And I think the spiking camera is like, uh, -uh. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you, you're not going to make it. Uh, but he suspects that Macbeth has designs on him in some way. So yeah, the next so time he sees Macbeth, who is king now, sitting on the throne. He's trying to flee. Yeah. And Macbeth is like, you're not trying to flee, are you? And he's like, no, no. And Macbeth <laughs> I also is notice like, your boy is there yeah. again. He's always fascinated <laughs> he's, with his He loves boy. his son, Fleance. Mm. And he says, uh, you know, I'm having a big feast later to celebrate being king. You'll be there, right? And Baco's yeah. like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah. right now I gotta mm -hmm. go over mm -hmm. here and they basically yeah. just like talk their way out of his presence and immediately yeah. ride away and immediately Macbeth turns to Ross and he's like we need murderers <laughs> yeah he says fetch me the kingdom's most bloodthirsty murderers and which he goes, they do immediately he talks to these two thanes who have fallen on hard times and basically promises them like kill Banquo and you know You'll have the favor of the king. I'll make your. I'll turn your lives around and blah blah blah. Basically tells them. Yeah, he them also lies. tells them that Banquo killed Duncan. Yeah, and uh, says Banquo's so the reason. Go kill him, his son. You fell on hard times. Banquo's bad. Mm. Kill Banquo. Banquo's the reason we're all fucking fuck. Banquo is what I'm saying. Incidentally, um, the midpoint of the film is the first moment we see him on the throne, which I just—it's amazing to me. Amazing. That the three-act structure with the midpoint flip, Shakespeare abides by for the most part. That's yeah, how it's old like a and five durable act, story five structure act is. Five-act is loosely the same in a lot of beats and a lot yeah. of stories. So mm -hmm. traditionally in the midpoint of a modern screenplay, you have to go from one world to another world. It's like, you know, you just try to flip into a new reality is, is what's often done. And mm -hmm. it's like he wasn't king, now he is king. Uh, it's just cool to me. So anyway, yeah. Lady Macbeth says things without all remedy should be without regard, which is saying like, if look, you did it. You killed him. You're a murderer. Get over mm -hmm. it. Um, and because start you're acting, acting weird. happy and stop yeah. having secret meetings. You're acting weird. Yeah. yeah. She's basically warning him that people are getting suspicious because you're acting fucking weird. Stop it. Yeah. That's basically <laughs> her note. And All says, um, this feast is a good chance to show everyone that you're normal. You're super normal. Yeah. So get back in there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, we cut to at the night at nighttime. We're back at the crossroads with the, uh, the house and the old man and such. Ross is teleported once again and he's teleported in front of Banquo and, uh, Banquo and his son mm. before they left. Uh, oh, I think sorry. Leave after. Also important something Macbeth says to himself, but right before that, which is that he does the prophecy math, and he's basically like, 
if Fleance dies, then I am immortal. Because yeah. the prophecy is all well and good because it said I'd be king. But I'll tell you what I don't like about the prophecy. It says Banquo's sons are going to be king after me. King as I well. want my yeah. sons to be king. So if I can't be killed... So talk by, about overreaching. Yeah. He wants... Or that comes later. He yeah. wants to fulfill the prophecy, but now he wants to break the prophecy because part of it doesn't agree with him. So he's like mm-hmm. taking overreaching to a whole new level, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, back to the murder. So Ross is meeting with the murderers who are there waiting at that same crossroad. And he says like, yeah, Macbeth sent me. That's how we all know what's going on. And they're like, okay, Banquo is coming. Banquo and Fleance come down the path. There's a fight. They kill Banquo. Fleance runs into the fields. Uh, the the murderers kind of flee because they feel like they've done their job and that they'll never find Flance because he's in, he's he, he escaped. But Ross follows and actually finds him and smiles right down the tube, the barrel. But the barrel. Spoiler alert: Flance, because his prophesied, does live and will mm-hmm. ultimately become king someday. So and this is a so choice a false... by Joel. Yeah, like to show it's not scripted. Obviously, that Ross finds Fleance in, in the a underbrush. Meadow or in the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think what Joel is trying to say is this is the moment where Ross switches sides. Bec- I Ross heard- is doing things for, I think, himself. Like he, right. he's holding, he's holding all the cards he realizes. So however this like shakes out, probably he'll end up on top. That was my read. Yeah. So up, he was willing to kill Banquo, but then it's just a very interesting choice that he could have easily killed Fleance, and he chooses not to for strategic he chooses not reasons. To. Yeah, yeah. It's also interesting that Joel keeps that from us. Joel Cohen keeps that from us. We don't see Fleance again till the end. Yeah, because people who already have known the script, you know, will think of that as a false. Will know it's a false beat. Right. Because they won't assume that Joel Cohen would just rewrite the ending of Macbeth. Um, uh, back at the castle, mm-hmm. back at the castle, uh, Macbeth Lady and Lady Macbeth, Macbeth and yep. invite all the people to the feast. And they're like, this is going to be great. I'm really normal. Not the kind of guy who would murder anyone. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, he goes, yeah. I have to go check with my murderers. I mean, these guys. And <laughs> these he guys. Anyway, everyone enjoy the night anyway. Yeah. And then he sees a, then he sees a crow mm-hmm. fly and he goes, that's weird. Well, he and then he sees Macbeth. Yeah, he just kind of, and then, yeah, and then he sees Banquo stroll up right behind him holding a torch, and he's like, oh, you motherfucker. So he, like, follows him down to a room, and he actually fights the apparition that, as everyone who's at the banquet has looked on and watched him yelling out and swinging at nothing. Uh, Very arrested development. Lady Macbeth, it's like uh, when they have the Save Our Blues thing. (laughs) It's pretty awkward. Because Lady Macbeth is going like, Ah, this is an illness he's had ever since he was a child. Don't worry about this. This is just one of his spells. And he's yeah. like, Banquo, get back here. And he's fighting God, a bird. Fighting and everyone's a bird. like, the king's acting <laughs> everyone's pretty like, weird. Yeah. She <laughs> finally opens a window and lets the crow out. And that's when, you know, it all falls apart for Macbeth. Because mm-hmm. he realizes, oh, it was just like a crow. And so he's, yeah, he basically just says, let's just roll with it. Yeah, I went crazy. But sometimes I fight crows. Yeah. I don't see things. This is just a thing I do. But all then the time. he secretly says to Lady Macbeth, uh, yeah. "This ain't good." He says, "You know, you know what they say: blood will have blood." And he's basically freaking out and feeling like 
yeah. we're going to be punished for our sins. This is fucked. Uh, right. And that he's upset that Macduff is that Macduff missed the feast. Who's another thing because he's like, cause he's like, that's a loose end. What if he suspects us? It's a loose end. Yeah. yeah. And the murderers say Fleance got away. So he's, and he's like, so like, I got to ramp up the crazy. This I got to getting do out of control. Stuff, tie right. up more loose ends. I'm, you know, I'm going to go to the witches later. And she's like, you know, you're pretty restless and you just need to sleep. Uh, you know, mimicking sleep, no more line, which she then drugs his drink. Uh, and that's how we fade out of that scene. Any other notes on that scene? Nope. There's a title card that says tomorrow. And uh, he Which basically. Which is a reference, right? To, from a previous yeah. speech. No, to, an, an upcoming speech. An upcoming speech. And he, probably the most famous speech in the whole thing, I, I would say, hands down. And he uh, is like, yeah, things are getting out of control. So I'm going I'm to get another reading from the Weird Sisters. Which is odd because I didn't know that he could call on them whenever he wants. And I'm asking that of Shakespeare and not Joel Cohen. Yeah, it's like, sure it's work. interesting that he's just like, he, at first he randomly meets this witch on the road and he's like, uh, what are the odds just, that we'd run into yeah. this witch? And now later he can summon them apparently. But anyway, he summons yeah. them and asks their counsel and they do the very famous bubble, bubble, toil and trouble, dropping eye of nude and shit and some racist mm -hmm. things like the liver of an untrustworthy Jew and stuff yeah, into yeah, the cauldron. Yeah. Some yeah. dated shit. And they mix it all up. Uh, he says, how now you secret black and midnight hags. Uh, they mm -hmm. say something wicked this way comes. I believe it's implied because they say, don't ask us, ask our master. I think it's Satan, but it's some kind uh, of. I thought, it, I thought it was fate. Okay. Well, they because say they, speak to our they master. They continue the subject of that sentence into the next few lines. And they regard fate as someone that you can't look, you can't ask questions upon. You can only listen to. Well, whoever and I think that that's is not even like more something that's Satan-y. Whoever's even more powerful than the witches. Right. Comes their master in the form of these creepy little water children uh, mm -hmm. to tell him a new prophecy. And he keeps interrupting with questions and the witches keep saying, you don't get to ask questions. This is our master. The master's prophecy mm -hmm. is is fine. That's how it works. Yeah. And they say uh, the new parts Beware of the prophecy Macduff. are Beware Macduff. And he's like, I knew it. And then they say, uh, <laughs> no one of woman born can harm Macbeth. And he takes that He's to like, mean, yes. oh, I'm invincible? That's good. And then yeah. he says, well, then why should I be afraid of Macduff? And they go, no questions. <laughs> and then they say, last but not least, uh, oh, no, sorry. He says, the but woods. I got to know. Oh, you're right. The woods one. Sorry. They say you will, your, your lineage will never be overthrown until the very woods of Burnham come against you like the forest attacks yeah. you and he's like that's never gonna happen and he goes well if the forest has to attack me which will never happen and anyone and born of a woman can't kill me why should i fear McDuff? i'm just gonna go kill mcduff yeah. and he goes okay so then if i just kill mcduff i'm good and then he goes last but not least earlier you said banquo's son would be king what did you mean by that and they just vanished they're like no, no more, more answers. questions yeah, we're done now <laughs> peace uh, so Lady Macbeth arrives and Macbeth is just dr dropping the lines out because he's, she's got an entourage with him out loud. He's just saying like, did you see that shit? <laughs> and so he's witches? just not helping her whatsoever. Uh, Lady Macbeth tells uh, him that Macduff has fled to England. So Which it's is pretty where clear Malcolm he's is. suspicious. 
you know, because not that's just where suspicious, is. but probably going to raise an army with Malcolm They're, and yeah. come back. Yeah. So Macbeth vows to basically kill Macduff and kind of uh, says like, I got to just take care of this. I don't care if it means I have to take out his line and a servant overhears this. And the servant also witnesses Lady Macbeth, who had been listening and begun playing with her hair. Uh, a clump comes out. So it's a real good picture of both of them. They're losing their minds and losing their yeah. physical and this know, is properties. Arguably sudden by modern storytelling standards. But it's, it's like three scenes essentially, away. Essentially, they've switched places in this instant. He doesn't feel right. guilty anymore and is like, I don't care. I'll fucking slaughter everyone. I don't care anymore. Uh, and right. Lady Macbeth at that same instant is like, ooh, I'm starting to feel guilty. <laughs> like, I don't like this yeah. anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not going to go well for the old Macduff clan or Macbeth clan. Yeah. Then the uh, things, there starts to be like dissension among the ranks. Some of the things yeah. seem suspicious. Some One of them sends warnings There's to Macduff rumors. and Malcolm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At Macduff's home, Ross kind of arrives to talk to Lady Macduff and, uh, you know, their son about, he's got many children, but we only see one child, uh, about Macduff fleeing Scotland to England. She argues that, like, look, it's dangerous and he didn't say anything and we're all here. None of this makes sense. So, like, tell me what's up. I'm obviously very worried. Ross is like, nah, it's nothing. Macduff knows what he's doing. And he's probably just, like, you know, doing good stuff like he doesn't mm -hmm. ross does not give anything to give her calm he basically just like don't worry about it meanwhile uh, we know he knows what's mm -hmm. coming because he knows exactly out the window what, yeah. and he sees soldiers marching up to the castle and yeah he's and like, then he, Oof, here it comes <laughs> here it comes so uh lady mcduff talks to like her child about the prospect of losing his father uh and a woman enters saying that which i also like that scene a lot but oh, there's nothing the plot. kid's death is brutal yeah, relevant. Oh, uh, yeah. That, <laughs> the yeah, woman yeah. enters saying that she needs to leave with her family now. And we recognize that woman is the woman who just saw Lady Macbeth and Macbeth like losing their minds and late. confessing that like I need to kill the Macduff family. Yeah. Um, so she's like, you should probably bail. Too late, though. Uh, you know, <laughs> they <laughs> set late. a fire. They come in and grab her kid and hurl him into the fire. It's really haunting. It's, it's haunting. Shot. Yeah. Yeah. So meanwhile, Macduff is in England with Malcolm and Ross has fast traveled again. <laughs> How did Ross get from to England from fucking Scotland? Anyway, fucking yeah. fucking. He's got all he's fucking got the cheat codes, dude. Mm -hmm. uh, they asked about like, what's what's the deal in Scotland, baby? And he tells uh, Macduff that his family was fine when he left. And he's like, that seems like a weird way they to were well that at peace when I left him. And he goes, yeah. what do you mean by that? And it's, I think, maybe the most emotionally impactful moment. Yeah. He says, I hope that you don't hate me forever. Your ears don't hate my tongue because I'm about to tell you, bar none, the worst thing you'll ever hear. Uh, they're all slaughtered, basically. Yeah, they're all slaughtered. And, and the actor yeah, kills You know it. that they're cousins and like yeah. it's fucked up. Yeah. I love his response too, which I know a lot oh. of revenge stories have done yeah. it, but Malcolm I just love the let your comfort be your revenge upon him and his children. And McDuff says he has no children. <laughs> no children. Like it's I can't so even, good. I can't even give him the pain that he gave me. He yeah. can't understand Fuck. it. Shakespeare. Really good. 
Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Um, yeah. And Everyone's I love the line, um, did heaven look on and would not take on their part? Like, I mm-hmm. can't believe something mm-hmm. so odious could happen and like angels didn't right. come and protect them. How can this happen? Really good grief scene. But of course, right. they turn it all to revenge. He says, let this be the whetstone of your sword. And uh, we get the impression that they're going to go on the offensive and attack yeah, Macbeth. Corey Hawkins, the name of the man who plays uh, Macbeth, really killing it in or this. Or Macduff, yeah. Macduff, sorry. Macduff. I uh, recognize him probably from uh, the Kong School Island he was in. He was in. I knew I'd seen him before, yeah. Spike Lee's mm-hmm. uh, uh, Black Klansman. Gotcha. Um, in the in the heights stuff yeah, like that, but it. yeah, I've seen him also. I think he's done some TV too. Um, anyway, very good, very good. Big, big uh shoes to fill for mm-hmm. Macduff. That's a big role. Um, so yeah, in Scotland, struck by grief as well. Now at this point, Lady Macbeth stands on a cliffside, which I thought was a nice little touch. Mm-hmm. Her servants discuss that she's been sleepwalking. She's been writing stuff down and reading it to herself while asleep, which is kind of a haunting image. I gather it's because she needs to like say something, but yeah. her waking mind won't allow her to actually say it. Uh, and we get the out, out damn spot speech because some water drops on her hand and she, you know, Thinks hallucinates it's that it's blood, which we saw on the same hand earlier when she touched the dagger. She did get blood on that. The hand. doctor says infected minds due to their deaf infected minds due to their deaf pillows discharge their misdeeds, basically saying. Oh, she did it. <laughs> like this she, is a yeah, confession. Yeah. This is not an illness. This is uh, a guilt. guilt. Yeah, they yeah. killed the king. Oh and, shit. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, so it's all unraveling because another... now commoners uh, know, like everyone in the kingdom knows mm-hmm. that he did it. We have another continuity cut because now the banging of Duncan or the banging of fate that has permeated their, uh, you know, their their castle. Has uh, she hears it now, right? And it cuts mm. to we when we cut to the next scene, a man chopping wood at the same pace. Another Cohen Brothers hallmark. And it's Burnham Wood, the forest that was prophesied to move against him. To move and against them. Macduff and Malcolm are there with an entire army, and their plan is to attack from the woods and to disguise themselves. They're going to cut branches off the trees and hold them in front of themselves Mm -hmm. to disguise their number until they reach the edge of the wood and then they'll drop them. So in other words, the prophecy is coming true. The wood is moving against him. Right, right. right. And and the the two men who are talking, I assume that those are just, those are two Scottish Thanes loyal to Macduff, I assume, or are those British soldiers? I think the British soldiers are later. They're not arrived yet. So it's just, they're saying they're just like, loyal you, also, men. Yeah. you reap what you sow. We all know it's Macbeth is like Macbeth's going down. Um, and I, yeah. <laughs> it's also great that it's Denzel because it makes these, it's like, it's like, um, railing at a honky <laughs> because in the original Shakespearean, there's a servant who comes and says to Macbeth, oh, right. oh the soldiers are here. And he uh-huh. goes on and on about how he's white. He's super white. Look how white your face is. And of course, in Shakespeare's time, that's like calling you a coward because the blood leaves right. your face when you're scared. But I love that it's specifically yeah. a black dude who's like, you way-faced coward. You cream-faced yeah. loon. Get out of yeah. here, cracker. You fucking cracker. <laughs> yeah. oh, that's good. But basically, he demands, he goes, uh, hang those that talk of fear. Give me mm-hmm. mine armor. I'll I'll fight the whole army myself, 
even though most of his people are now abandoning ship or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, He tells the doctor, did you, you know, cure my wife? And he goes, there's nothing to cure. She she needs administrations of a priest, not a doctor. And he gets pissed. He goes to hell with physic then. I'll have none of it. I'll fight until my flesh is hacked from my bones. Like, basically, fuck everyone. I'm going to do it myself. And he's very confident, right? Because he thinks he can't be killed. That's, he yeah, that's he's like, thing. I got magic on my side. So the castle and the wood, we get this, like, intercut sequence, kind of readying for war. Macbeth screams atop the parapets. And Joel Cohen does something I really... I don't think you could do with Shakespeare. Like, I never thought you could do it. Which is cut him off. Yeah, uh, there's a line where he's yelling and we're like, we get the idea, uh, you know, like, like we get the idea that Macbeth is crazy. So the film cuts away mid yell to emphasize that he's lost it. Like yeah. this is a film trick we're all aware of an editorial technique can't that Shakespeare would never have conceived of. Right. And you can't do in a play. And it basically elucidates exactly what the play is trying to say with a new, you know, filmic lexicon something that we're familiar with and the other i think biggest swing that joel takes as a decision in this whole thing and it sort of follows up to when ross found fleance and spared him right before so famously lady macbeth now sees the soldiers going out to fight and then we and then in the play as scripted we cut, we cut away and we cut back and someone just says Lady Macbeth is dead and it's heavily yeah. implied she killed herself from grief. But right. in this version, she's we, lying on the floor. We silently see Ross walk up the stair towards her with a glint in his eye. I think it's still open to the interpretation. Implication. The implication being that Ross is like. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna these hurl people. her down the stairs because that's now strategically to my advantage. Like right. this, this is all falling apart. I'm gonna turn sides again. Which means, I mean, he's magic. He's teleporting. Like I don't know. Like it, like it's now a new story. <laughs> like to me, I don't know. Ross is almost a tool of the fates, and he looks kind of crow like. Yeah. yeah. He also looks like a snake because everyone <laughs> has. Like we'll talk about costumes. He's like actually, a Lex. mashup of Varys and Littlefinger. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll 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 talk about that in uh, Pedagogy. I think. So then, uh, um, someone tells the king that you know your wife is dead, and uh, mm-hmm. he says the speech that the title card tomorrow came from, which I think is it's my favorite speech from the thing, and I think it's most people's most known speech from Macbeth, which is. There is a word for uh, she should have died henceforth. She there is a word for when she should have fallen. Mm. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps right. in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a strutting player upon the stage. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Which man is about as poetic an encapsulation of nihilism as I think you can get. Cohen Brothers, nihilism. Uh, I think we're hinting at why he likes this one. But uh, yeah, so Macbeth has basically decided, man, life is inscrutable and fate is inscrutable. It's just a bunch of shit, random bullshit, and it all mm-hmm. ends in everyone dying. And it, after all this, I can't make out what it meant. It didn't mean anything. It's just like, a bunch what of stuff that happened. Doing here? Yeah, why did nothing. this all happen? Yeah. He opens the window Tragic. and leaves 
fill the room, the throne room, which is cool because that's literally the instrument of their camouflage is leaves, right? Yeah, so leaves. So it's like he's being in it, he, the, it's being taken over. Uh, and the castle is now empty, by the way. He's all that remains because everyone has bailed. They know it's the deal. And a British soldier, soldier arrives Seward. asking like, hey, yes, yeah, Seward. He's like, hey, are you uh, Macbeth? And he's like, yep. And he's like, Macbeth is like, I want to ask you if uh, you were born of a woman. He's like, yeah. All right. And he goes, then let's fight. (laughs) Then let's fight. And he's like, and it is an awesome fight because he fights him with like no weapon and he fucks him up real good. Dude. He like gives him his sword back and everything. It's like an anime. Seward comes at him with his sword. He easily dodges he his attack, thrusts him, pimp sword. slaps his sword out of his hand, then yeah. gives him his sword back as if to say, like, try again. And right. he tries again and he fucking takes him apart barehanded, stabs him in the back with the same dagger he's he used. He finally the whole throws time. his own blood from the cut that he got against his <gasps> cheek right. into he his eyes. Him with blood. A- he blinds God. him with blood to grab his knife and sword and just slices him, walks on. It's like a super, it, you get, I actually was just like, it is like oh, anime. Shit. Yeah. Well, what's that? Uh, fuck what I'm, I'm blanking on the name. Nobody. No, yeah. No. What was the nobody that he was in? The executioner, the ex, the, Oh, it literally fuck. reminded me of the movie. Nobody, the Bob Odenkirk movie. Well, th- that's the thing is that he had the equalizer. He the, literally oh, had sure. a role like this where he just like, I undo you in like the lowest amount of time. In yeah. The smallest he just increments efficiently of time. disassembles yeah, Seward. It was yeah. just like, that's funny because he's played Robert McCall, the character who he plays in the equalizer. He's like, he's like channeling that, but that's himself. just a cool way to yeah. kill him later atop the castle. Macduff now arrives and he threatens him of course. Cause you know, revenge and all oh, that. Macbeth so says, good, dude. look, let me ask you a question. <laughs> Are yeah. you of woman born? And he goes, actually, no, uh, I was a C-section. I was born yeah. by C-section and Macbeth goes, Oh, oh shit. let's not fight. <laughs> <laughs> let's not fight actually not he fight. says i'll fight you anyway let let whatever yeah, like i don't care Duff's not gonna let him out of not fighting right. anyway so uh they fight in this impossibly designed castle like <sighs> rooftop the climax the corridor. two climactic fights are so good <laughs> really good yeah. uh we get this bat and it culminates in the one of the coolest shots in the whole thing if not of the year so far yep. a badass shot where mcduff behead uh mcduff beheads Macbeth while he's holding his own crown it's like ah, uh, uh, that shot uh, he's like slices so to too. the left and you can and see his head just pans. falling backwards yeah. as his crown. The camera keeps panning left and follows his arm. And as it reaches mm-hmm. his hand, he lets go of his crown and it falls and off the rampart. Continuity cut. We get the walking up of two shots, brief two shots. Macduff holding Macbeth's head in that exact visual real state, mm-hmm. along with the crown. Cut to Malcolm, who's like, yeah, being crowned king. And, and they say all hail King of Scotland. Bingo bango, right? Then there's a final vignette where we where Joel reveals that Fleance was protected and hidden by the old man slash witch in the hovel at the crossroads that we saw from by before. Ross. They yep. ride below a hill yep. in terms of the shot. They, and out yep. of the hill comes a swarm of crows that fly out. 
until I they block the sun. A murder, and, the and it blots out the sun. <laughs> yeah, a murder of crows. It ends with a or it of blots crows. out the sun, meaning fleance, whatever you want to. Yeah, but the idea is uh, fleance is being whisked back to the castle where he will one day become king. Is doing its fate thing. Fate it's like its Final job. Destination up yeah. in here, and that's yeah. a Macbeth as told by Joel Cohen. As told uh, by the Cohen brothers, brothers. <laughs> As a single Cohen Brothers, yeah, uh, and so yeah, let's uh, move to the next thing. Oh, I do want to say one thing. Mm-hmm. If anyone was wondering and they didn't want to check it into it, why are the Cohen Brothers? Why not are they together? not working together? Well, the simple answer is that nothing happened. It's just Ethan is done with movies, and Joel still kind of wants to make movies. And Francis McDormand and Joel were like, "Let's make that one," and yep. they've been talking about it for a year. These guys have a bunch of scripts on their tables. Who knows if Ethan will come back? It's not. It's like you know everything's fine, but obviously there was some no lines fight. From, yeah. Francis, There's no fight or anything like that. Francis McDormand also uh, has played Lady Macbeth several times in high-profile mm-hmm. theatrical productions. Uh, and Denzel, of course, has been in Shakespeare films and plays. Yeah. Uh, so it, it was basically, I think it's more like Joel's ready, or I'm sorry, Ethan's ready to retire. And Joel's yeah. like, I'm ready to shift gears and not have to like lift the whole weight of the world on our shoulders and write it and produce right. it and everything. But yeah. I'd shoot a movie. It's still fun to me. So it's they just still picked cool. something that appealed to them and made it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and well, if, uh, I think you can tell they shifted gears by the fact that this is the quickest shot Coen Brothers movie ever. It's very quick. It yeah. was shot I mean, in like 36 it, days ha- or something. Shot on stage when you have the money can move like a dream. So yeah. that's one reason. And also they wanted to minimize the days because of the COVID. But um, Speaking of minimizing, let's talk pedagogy. pedagogy. And yeah. I want to start with do you think that it's merely a stylistic choice or is there anything more to the sheer minimalism here? Because basically this movie is comprised of like five shapes, which is amazing to me. Yes. The archway shape, the the cross shape and circles. Uh, That's like, I don't think, yeah, I don't think it's fair just to ask why minimalism, because only not only, I mean, it's not that it's unfair, I guess it's just that it's uh, multifaceted to Mm. me. It's a better question is why the bare art design. And I think it's exactly what you just said, which is to essentially limit all of the design into a few basic shapes. And there's some that are more prevalent than others. One of them's are circles amongst mm. darkness or, you know, light or light and a, or, or yeah, the, reverse either, of the negative exactly. image of all these. Cause they're shapes on canvas. So you really just say like, and also the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but more or less, it's just the same, you know, actual lines uh the corridor is another one and that really is here's the thing is it really comes down to uh you could probably organize a lot of these into uh the concept of single unilateral vanishing point so what that means if you don't remember your art class is that you can have multiple like two point Van like two point perspective, three point perspective, where you have many different the way that the artist renders on a flat canvas, uh, the directionality of where things are going or like can be multifaceted. But if you just imagine, let's say, a train 
tracks down if you shoot from the uh, ca- uh your camera photo down, down the length of train tracks down the lane of the train tracks and you have one line you have developed a vanishing point Single out vanishing of one point. clear line as opposed now, to kind of, let's yeah. say you're standing at a crossroads or i'm sorry let's say you're standing at a fork in the road and there's two right. roads going there's out two that's those. two vanishing points and, and there's so another on. one like a yeah. skyscraper has one that goes up to the sky and that would be your xyz axis so that would be three point point is uh, the directionality of fate is unilateral. It is one oh, vanishing dude, point so visually. Of All course, things lead there, the right? The entire that's this... movie is periodic and only going one way. That's what makes it a tragedy. Right. That's why there's so much central composition and symmetry in this movie. That's why things orbit or draw the eye inward to the middle of the frame. It means fate is in control. And when there's unbalance, there is slight unbalances and it's rectified by the end of the film. It's always looking central and the shapes do change subtly, but the organization of those shapes, i.e. orbiting and central are always maintained. And that is why I think that he made minimalist choices in the art design to draw out that one central purpose. And I think classically speaking, that's so in accord with the idea of the classical form of a comedy is built on surprise and the empowerment of the characters with free will and the idea that Randomness can happen. Confusion can reign. Chaos can reign. You never know what's going to happen next. These are the kinds of things that tend to make people laugh and feel like, well, you just got to laugh because it's a bunch of crazy nonsense. Whereas tragedy, and this has evolved in the modern context, but classical tragedy, the definition of a tragedy, it almost always, like if you go back to the Greek tragedies, it starts with a prophecy. They almost always tell you the ending because what is the most tragic thing? that we're all going to die and we all know that and that is the core of tragedy and it the idea of tragedy is always that try as you might you have no free will your yeah, fate diminishes it won't to a it. point yeah. yeah that is like all, what originally mm-hmm. built the concept of tragedy yeah man that's so I cool. also would argue that like almost all Coen brothers films are not very minimalist in production design. No. There's stark or clean design like Hudsucker's Futurism and Art Deco style, and those rooms can even be as minimal as the ones that we see in this film. But this is like bare, like taking out, like they're at a banquet and no one has food, you know? Yeah, it's... it's, you. I mean, you instinctively want to compare it to the man who wasn't there, but the man who wasn't there is lived in lavish with grays yeah. of various like, look at the yeah. different textures we can accomplish all in grayscale. This is not that. This, and also just like the props and stuff in the rooms yeah. and like it, it's still the 50s. It's like just, you said, uh, the feast looks like a... It's nothing fancy. Like his castle is just a medium sized No tapestries. Room. Yeah. No sconces. It's all light coming through pillars. It's all natural light, by the way, for mm-hmm. more the most part. And, and it's I all just, asymmetrical design. That's the last thing I want to say sure. about that. Oh, is continue, that the, please. The uh the the Macbeth's uh not it's not not necessarily although you do see a, a little bit in the what's the name of Duncan's Dunsinane? 
Duncanane, um, whatever. It's either Dunsinane or Donalbane. I think it's Donalbane yeah. and Dunsinane's a place, but I forget. Exactly. Okay. But uh, whereas that from his previous, because he moves in the, in the Macbeths, they move their castle once he gets called king, right? Mm-hmm. But it looks basically the same. Um, but like one of the things is you notice about the castles in this movie. They're just big is with the cubes. exception. Yeah. yeah, there's big pews and stuff, but you notice that there's uh with the exception of a few shots that are usually like focused on faces, uh it's ma- mainly pointing out the asymmetrical designs of it. And by that I mean like the composition when you look at the canvas of the the you know, the frame, mm-hmm. it's represented right or left heavy top or bottom heavy not as center and i think that that's to juxtapose the idea of not fate being out of whack but just to show that there there, there's an unnaturalness unnaturalness to this absolute like um sharp contrasts and angles and the asymmetrical designs point out that there's things that are jagged in Mm -hmm. frames and stuff like that and um it's that's uniquely not cohen Right. Uh, another thing Cohen does is the reason that they put a lot of stuff in frame is because they love parallax. They love slight dolly moves that pronounce big shifts and small shifts mm-hmm. in different parts of the frame. And if you don't ground the frame with stuff, you don't see those dolly moves and you don't see that typical relative scale change that make you feel like the camera's moving in and something is changing uh, or the space is coming alive. Um, and it also affects composition where you are now drawing the eye to the set deck and the setting itself, as opposed to like a lot of the other elements of the room, like what's in this room. You don't have, you have to focus on this blank wall. So, and you're like, I'm bored of that. So I'm going to look at the faces of the actors. Uh, so there's a lot, it influences how, why they center punch shots. Let's center punch the actors more because let's include the entire shape of the room or the building in order to make it look good. But but, uh, you know, like we more or less just want to care about the actors. So I think that these things were choices that were not done lightly. It's not something where, uh, you know, it's pretty clear or it's rather it's something that's pretty clear that they're like aware of the, how these oh, choices affect the no, shots. Of course. They're, yeah. they remain, Joel remains among the greatest Cohen, living yeah. directors. Like there is yeah. a reason every time I sit down to watch a Coen Brothers movie, I get that feeling and almost instantly I'm like, I'm in such good hands. I can't, I can't it's express gonna be how much better yeah. this is than every other movie <laughs> in the sense that, so like as simple as the first few seconds of this movie, I paused and turned to Jen and was like, do you understand how good the filmmaking is in this? And they're like, <laughs> like, it was one shot. They're like, what are you talking about? All that's happened is a black frame and then a white frame. And I'm like, exactly. <laughs> this is a, going to be a stark, hard lit black and white movie. And as if to say, here's the color palette I'm going to play with. I, as a magician, I'm going to show you all my tools and then do magic with it. The film mm-hmm. starts with a solid black frame and I think to imitate the feeling of a curtain opening, because that is how it made me feel, it suddenly mm-hmm. has a loud clank sound and it goes to a white frame. And what is that white frame? It, it slowly resolves to be, oh, we're looking up at the sky and a little silhouette of a crow circles. And what does a circling crow represent? A battlefield full of dead bodies. And all they had to do was show me blackness, whiteness, outline of a crow going in a circle and i'm already like transported 
mm-hmm. to another world where dead bodies are stinking to the sky. Like, mm-hmm. and then the crow turns out to be the symbol that the witch embodies. It's fucking so good. It's so yeah, tight. It's I was in so fast. I mean, my God. Yeah. It, it, they, they, he, <laughs> he just knows what he's got doing. It. Yeah. It's like, he knows what he's, he's doing. still got it. Um, yeah. Th- yeah. Go ahead. And it was just, I mean, thinking about just now, like, the receipts mm-hmm. um the idea of like we you you just mentioned the crow circling mm-hmm. you know so whiteness with blackness kind of uh invading the space and orienting that circle in the center uh, you mentioned a shot when we were talking about earlier in like act four with Banquo being swallowed by darkness. Uh, he's literally got a spotlight on his head and it's the same frame and Banquo is like the light. That's he is the where sun being swallowed the, by a dark cloud. He's the sun yeah. being swallowed by darkness. And you know that Banquo is marked for death because he's going to be eaten. Uh, because it's just so, he's so small relative to the darkness. Macbeth orbits the circle during, in the scene, uh, in, like another overhead shot to kind of allude to the same kind of thing that he's doing. Um, Macbeth in the scene with the murderers where he like uh, he he, get, he gets the murderers to kill uh, to go out and kill Banquo. Mm-hmm. Uh, he there's a circle of light in that room. Macbeth never walks into it. He walks around right. it and the murderers are also on the fringe. Black and white simplifies the iconic like the iconography of the contrast. It's like not color wouldn't do it that way because you'd worry about color contrast everything's just on one scale and that's the moral scale if you were to look metaphorically i love the well i'm i guess i'm i don't need to go chronologically but i'm obsessed with the witch and how good the witch is handled how well the witch oh, is handled man um yeah the fact that the witch she, is Catherine Hunter. Yeah. And associated already getting a lot of noms for stuff. Oh yeah. Good. People are pointing her out as like one of the best parts of it. And it's true. It's true. And, uh, they want to associate the witches with crows and she does like this amazing body acting, like gyrating. When we first see her, she pulls a sailor's thumb up with her feet. Like she handles Mm -hmm. stuff. She's, she's holding a a toe with her toes. So she handles shit with her feet. And then, uh, she crawl. She like waddles over bird-like to a dead body and takes a cloak and off cawing. it, puts yeah. it on herself, and becomes human. I don't know how to describe it any other way, but the actor. That's why just... I pointed out the Igmar Bergman because there's this kind of solemnity and uh, like kind of off-putting dominance of a cloaked figure like yeah. that. Uh, in, shot in that way that is used to great effect in like the seventh seal. Bergman like, loves that Bergman. shit. Yeah, and uh, we already mentioned it, but I don't think you can mention enough the brilliance of having the witch cast two reflections, both to show that she's otherworldly because you shouldn't cast two mm-hmm. reflections, and because fate is often classically depicted as the three in one, the three sisters or a creature with three heads or three faces or three points of view. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's just an image that dates back hundreds of years. And he captured it with only one actress. <laughs> that's so cool. 
Yeah, and when they become the three, when they become the chorus, that's mm-hmm. also cool. Is it yeah. does another like development where it's like now it's no longer reflections. Now they just speak with three It's voices. three ladies. Yeah. Oh wait, you thought it was three ladies? No, it's three crows. What is it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and that's when you cut to McDuff's or Banquo going like, I think we're high. <laughs> um, I really liked the choice that is of course not scripted because Shakespeare didn't script like. And off stage, this sound happens. <laughs> so, um, in fact, the idea of Macbeth refusing to execute the Thane of Cawdor is not canonical uh, because it's all done just through nods That's and cool. like Didn't shaking the head. So, yeah, they don't they don't basically the Thane of Cawdor is just killed off camera, so to speak, in the play. But in this, uh, Joel decides to have him be offered like by Ross, do you want to execute him yourself? And he says, no, or, you know, with his body language, he closes his tent flap. Like, no, then the moment it's just, you couldn't pick a more perfect moment. Right. Symbolically. Then when he says, if chance will have me be King, then chance will crown me without my stir. Meaning, Oh, well, if the fates say I'm supposed to be King, who am I to argue? Boom, you hear the sound of the guy's Boom. head getting chopped yeah. off outside. And it's right. like, this, Consequence. Is, yeah. this is the point of no return. It's almost as if by accepting his fate, this guy dies. It's so cool. Yeah, I think that there's a lot that he does, especially in those transitions. He, uh, most directors of Shakespeare and in the, the in the theater usually, and also there's a history of it a little bit in the film with like Kenneth Branagh, et cetera. Um, well, I guess he did Hamlet. Did he ever do Macbeth? I know they just done it in theater, but I can't yeah. remember if there's a Macbeth. There's several Macbeth movies, isn't there? Is there a Mel Gibson one? I can't recall. Um, <clears throat> point is, a lot of these people are usually laissez-faire, pretty hands-off, because you just kind of want to let the bard speak, if you if you mm-hmm. would. Um, so in terms of staging and how the plot is adapted, I would say that that's still fairly true with Joel Cohen's interpretation. He lets all the symbolism of Shakespeare, with the exception of stuff like the dagger, um, like just the stuff that Shakespeare was taking advantage of. It's ravens, it's blood, it's light, it's dark. It's like yeah. real basic like symbolism stuff. Um, and he doesn't really play it out with any renewal or attempt to adjust it that hard. Just lean distillation of the work. Um, yeah. And then he's also got these exceptions with loud visual choices and editorial choices and stuff that has even been mainstays of Shakespeare productions where they like really reinterpret and make, you know, avant-garde uh, theater. Or, or in the theater, we, we love to like do Macbeth, but it takes place in a modern office building and it's yeah, all a visual often, metaphor yeah. for like still the same Romeo language plus Juliet, but it's uh, a yeah. right, but it's a, uh, you know, aggressive acquisition of a company instead of murders or right and so this is on the other side of that i like that he does do the symbolism well and chooses to i does i guess he does in a way renew it by like finding new ways to execute it but like ultimately he doesn't try to replace those items he doesn't he bears it away in fact just like we're talking about with how the castles are empty Everything is removed. All the stuff is removed, more or less, from both a Coen Brothers film and from a Shakespeare play, even to the extent that I would say theatrical Shakespeare. <laughs> it's pretty bare, yeah. right? 
Jen was he's like, letting the architecture do the story. Jen said, as if it were an insult, his crown isn't very fancy. And I was like, that's the point. <laughs> Why would his crown be fancy? That would ruin the whole aesthetic. <laughs> God, what if, oh, now I just want to direct Shakespeare for bits like that. Just like the fanciest crown you can find. That's the one we need. Yeah, no, it's, that's absolutely right. That's, that's one of the cool things about stuff like this. Why I love doing like, not just this job of like talking about movies, but mm-hmm. making movies. It's just like, it is crazy how you reskin it and make it a little new, shoot it on new cameras, put actors in it that people recognize. Shakespeare ain't broke, you know? No, and in fact, the spareness with which it's handled speaks to the durability of things like flipping the world at the midpoint. And I wrote down, compare to Raimi's A Simple Plan with Lady Macbeth, compare to John Wick, Honestly, there's some John mm-hmm. Wick in this movie. Like, yeah, when he like, even when he like just unleashes the dagger, is like the dagger in, that's in my hand, and then he like slices Shing. it out. And you're like, yeah. oh shit, this is gonna go down. It's right now. like a spare, lean, mean nihilism machine. And as as yeah. listeners of this podcast know, the Coen brothers are fascinated with nihilism or the idea of trying to understand why does anything mean anything because most stuff just seems like violence begets violence and it spirals out of control and uh Macbeth (laughs) it's like there's nothing new under the sun which itself is a Shakespeare line uh Macbeth already told that story and it did a damn fine job (laughs) it really holds up it's just like yeah it's a little the the language is archaic it's hard to follow Mm -hmm. but like the themes and if it's acted right are very relevant. They're all there. Like relevant to today. You get yeah. it. You can be a dummy like me and be like Lady Macbeth. Like, was Duncan saying? Like, did you guys fuck? And it's like, yeah, that is kind that of is what, what he's, he's asking. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it's just nice. Uh, I know that a lot of people had. Uh, we're a lot of people listening to this are going to have different, uh, you know, scales of like. I've read a lot of Shakespeare. I've read very little Shakespeare, and they all have opinions on it because we're all kind of taught it in Western culture because he's kind of the OG. Um, and it's just like one of those things that seems like no simple realization about Shakespeare isn't good to have once in a while. You know, it doesn't make it any less profound, even though it is an old hat at this point, Shakespeare good. And speaking of influence, like we should point out, uh, and I, this, I think because, Yeah, because that spareness, as we've been saying, all the elements are so crystal clear that I was reminded of things that are very cool that I had forgotten about. Like, Mm -hmm. for example, Fly, Fleon's Fly, directly inspired Fly, You Fools from Lord of the Rings. Fly, yeah, And so did the... The Burnham Wood marching on the castle of Dunsinane. That's right. The is place also, is Dunsinane. Donald Bane's the son. But that's the Ents. And Tolkien said explicitly, yeah, 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 that's from Macbeth, or that's a Macbeth That's from reference. Macbeth, yeah. That's so cool. Speaking, <laughs> speaking of the craftsmen speaking about their work, I found a mm-hmm. uh, track down, because there's already interviews of some of the uh, crew talking about it. There's a Vulture uh, mm-hmm. article with Allison Wilmore, who uh, who worked on, I believe, or no, no, sorry, sorry. This is the review. I'm, I'm going to reference that other uh, other quote later. The review of it in mm-hmm. Vulture, which I thought was pretty apt, which is like, 
uh, Macbeth becomes like so many of Cohen, Cohen's protagonists, a screech, uh, character trapped in his own fixations and failings. Something we referenced before the concave world on screen, a reflection of the self he can't escape. What better view of a bear castle as a prison and the fact that it's asymmetrical and hard to get out of, there's no symmetry or balance. The frames imply that, but the actual structures are not, are not aligned with that. In other words, you are constantly in this paradoxical world, like this fighting inside a frame in every shot in that, like act three, act four, act five mm -hmm. in the, in the, in the castle sequences where you have compositions that are both fighting for what well, the left side is the dominant side in terms of the architecture. But my eye wants me to go to center frame because that's where all things are going eventually because of the unilateral directionality that, of, of the thing fate. I mentioned before yeah. of fate. So he has these things where it's like the eye is drawing you to left. The eye is drawing you to the right, but you're always fixated on the center. The actor isn't usually in the center or like what's important. Like when the Lady borders Macbeth will not save you or divert his body. Us. Yeah. yeah. The, and it's just this idea of like, he is Macbeth is constantly on the edges because he can't quite get into the center until he finally does and he's murdered or he's killed. Mm -hmm. But like until that point he's orbiting and he just can't get into the light. And it's just, there's such a simple metaphor that you just break it down at one thing like architecture or lighting and you can just really nail it. And uh, that's or, yeah. what my takeaway of this like film really is. And the, even the, the sheer, there's also like repeated foreshadowing which makes, which of course supports the idea of inevitability of fate. But like mm -hmm. before we even get the prophecy about Burnham Wood, Macbeth is awakened in a fright because a tree branch is knocking at his window. Get it? The <laughs> fucking forest is coming for you, dude. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Just good shit. Yeah, all that tent stuff has the like shadows of dead trees, mm -hmm. which aren't the same trees as the, you know, burns him right. or whatever. But it but, still um, gets that idea in your brain. It still gets the idea of the it's woods even are menacing. more so it's like this place is death. Only death will come from this place, but you still feel nature knocking on the door and in other words fate is going to rectify whatever your machinizations are when he starts to fight seward in the throne room first of all how good is that shot of yeah. denzel when they come into the throne room and he's slouched on the throne he's like he's with defeated. all the leaves yeah uh, yeah looks like the fucking watch the throne <laughs> cover but yeah um <laughs> in that sequence because the leaves have blown in and because there's these thin columns that create the archways when it does the side to side shot of him approaching seward it literally looks like you're in a forest now it doesn't look like you're in the castle yeah, anymore yeah but it's just because like the architecture like represents a forest. Yeah, yeah slash prison because you could think of the vertical bars as oh he fought so hard to be in here and what is it really a concrete block with vertical bars like he is in a prison of his own design right mm -hmm. yeah else? the last what thing else? i want to talk about <laughs> is kind of based off like one last thing about space in this movie mm -hmm. um like that often things are represented talking once again about minimalism the one of the big things that the film does is tries to uh, elucidate or like downsize any complexity about life into one single image. Like nature is often represented by a single tree or a road. Everything is a representation of that thing. You know what I mean? Like right. the, 
all, all the references of we don't get ex- exterior wide you know just b-roll of a uh, a forest to be, prove that we're in a forest you get we're a just tree. in a shot with some trees monolithic and they're having it and then they say that we're in a forest because that's something that theater can afford so he really ran with that because when you make everything basically a representation cohen is acclimating us to this like idea of like the world being surreal so i think we're not so affected by like the later scenes with like the castle and the exterior designs where it's like Mm. you really would know you would really notice like oh man this doesn't look like a castle's you know and it's simple stuff like every time someone's killed as part of the original conspiracy the killer always goes with their finger to their lips so it's like what is a symbol of conspiracy if not shh? So he just yeah, exactly. he carefully picked everything as just one symbol to mean one thing. You know what I mean? It's very Yeah, which is what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And people forget that. But this striving for it is different to try to make sure that every scene you have like one representation that rep- like that is what the scene is talking about. That is the true, I think, discipline that makes like a Cohen brother. A Cohen good writer. yeah and yeah. it's the it's the craft also reflecting the reality of life which i think is as we like to say life is actually not that complex there's just a lot of it um mm-hmm. it's not hard to think of what could symbolize a forest i don't know a tree but if you do that methodically termitically every instant and in, at every yes. level you create a masterpiece of co- of baffling complexity you just have to take it one tiny piece at a time uh last thing That's i had the marriage baby pedagogy was i just love to drive home the horror of duncan realizing this guy I trusted is about to stab me to death yeah that was, yeah. uh, I mean, that's they in have, the play, but they really, like, he does it really well. They have the it, performances and... Yeah, they mimic, they have a shot that's almost from Duncan's POV of Denzel that slowly fades as if to mimic your eyes adjusting to the dark. And it's like yeah. a great way yeah. to both make it realistic, like, oh, his eyes are adjusting to the dark, but also, of course, mm-hmm. it mimics the slow dawning realization Oh, this I'm is about a killer. to get murdered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, fuck. The guy thought, ah, oh, my previous flaws have come back to haunt me again. Uh, Duncan's kind of hilarious uh, yeah, well, as a character. Brennan Gleason's always great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but I mean, he's just like, he's just not like Duncan as a character, not a very good king. People are like burning him left and right and saying he's like a sloppy king and his son sucks. Yeah, you know? he's like, easy to overthrow as kings go. Yeah, that <laughs> is just funny. It's just that's funny. I see why Macbeth did it is what I'm saying. And I feel sympathy for him. Uh, that was the point right. of this. Because our movie, first right? introduction to him is he won the war that secured the mm-hmm. kingdom. He is a like strong, strapping, intelligent, you know, go getter. And I, it's easy to see why he can convince himself. I deserve this. I deserve this. Yeah. And like any tragedy, as you were kind of mentioning, you want to start at the highest high so that when you you throw him in the gutter. Yeah. Epic proportions, you know, and you did it to yourself. That's key. That's why a lot of people argue, you know, noticeably in, in, or historically John Milton noticing who's the greatest figure of tragedy in all of time satan <laughs> you know satan was the guy who fell the farthest uh oh, yeah. so it it's stuff angel. like that it's Used stuff like angel. that yeah 
How do you do that? How do you do that time? Not much. There's a few. I only have two. It's so recent. So I just turned it into random production notes that I'd be like, people might be interested in. Uh, But there's a few that I wanted to point out in the true spirit of how do you do that, which is how they do that. How how did they do that? And I actually don't know. I actually, because of two things. One, the black and white throws me for a loop. I tried to watch it as many times as I could. And I tried to search the internet to see, but I couldn't find it out. Cause I still think it's too young of a release for them to have an interview with like, a it's not a lot say, of BTS like, this is what information, it, yet, but yeah. they have this amazing thing where obviously I know how they, they did the water in like when they do the double, double toil and trouble. Oh, we forgot to mention the cauldron is represented by water magically seeping and filling the room and then van yeah. and like draining away. And so that yeah. Macbeth is like literally boiling in it as if he's like, he's in the cauldron. In a wash room. He's in the cauldron, a cauldron. Um, and yeah, it's the throne room, but, um, then they, that is fine because it's there and then it's suddenly, or it's not there and then it's suddenly there because they like fade a transition because mm-hmm. he wakes up and like looks up and sees the crows slash witches uh, in the rafters and yeah. it's just like, and then there's just water at his feet. But they do a shot where it's like fairly medium wide where they suck all of the water out of the uh, it disappears the into ground. the floor and, and he's sitting there and I'm looking at it is and I'm dry like, once it's gone, it, it's yeah. So I'm like, okay, so this probably because they had control was shot in reverse. Denzel look just stood there and just like, it's just going, it's fast and he's just be very still. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was probably how they did it. It probably is how they did it because the mind you can trick so easily by doing like that type of thing, like practically mm-hmm. where they just shoot in reverse, uh, meaning like they fill up the room with water up to his feet, uh, and then just play it in reverse. But there's also CG that you could do that. You could then put a take because I noticed that like at one point he looks up and it, there's no way in hell that his performance is sped up. So it's probably a combination. That's my that's my shot. I'm calling it, you think but it's it could be reversed? completely have been practical. Uh, just given the fact that we know how they shot it, they had control. They could do this. It's not the hardest thing to do. Right. I mean, it's very hard, but like a lot of movies do it, but it's doable. Um, yeah. So that's one. How do you do that? Um, interesting. And I think the same techniques were used on man it wasn't there and of course for oh brother they famously sort of invented digital color correction in order to get that look but uh, according to the cinematographer bruno del bono nearly all the costumes and sets were black and white so it's just interesting to think of the actors working on set and their costumes are also gray and the table is gray and Mm -hmm. the cups are gray so they had full control over you know, you could watch the dailies and know, yeah, it's going to be, it's not just going to be gray and I wonder what it'll be when we desaturate it. It's going to look how it looks because we literally made it. Gray. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that not, that com- not a complicated the, idea, but it makes no, total and it's since been solved with like video taps and such, but you right. want it to be perfectly one on one. And when you're shooting on digital, it's like a little easier to kind of see. And they used a very old technique that like German impressionist filmmakers used to do painting uh, shadows and such. Many of the shadows are painted directly onto the sets. Yeah, which that I shit, that's the shit that so cool. I go hard for. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah like using like because they could have used like. 
the cinematographer could have just used like, I'm going to make this light green. Why? I don't give a fuck. You know, Mm -hmm. like you can do whatever you want because you know, you're shooting completely in black and white, but there's this idea of like, well, if you, if you do make it completely grayscale and you have that control, then with your eyes, you can really, the palette is really clear, you know, Mm -hmm. because sometimes pink hits white in a way that's different than green hits white. You know, there's just different ways because there's different combinations. That's what we call color space, uh, on the digital realm where it's like, well, hue is different from chroma, uh, which is, you know, there's just a lot of different things to consider with color, uh, because it's not a it's it's more defined as a circle than just a pure spectrum. Mm. It loops upon itself, so it's kind of got close relatives, and that's why you have like secondary colors and such like that. There's more relationship to that rainbow, um, and so by choosing to be making this a limiting factor, saying we're going to have black and white and gray dresses and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. that makes it just easier for people to see with their bare eyes what is probably going to be on camera i think that's all i got i mean there's a song he inserted that's actually from 12th night not macbeth but other than that mm-hmm. i couldn't find anything where he fucked with the text that much yeah stefan deshant who was the art di- production designer uh and worked on alice in wonderland so uh you know like a burton you know mm-hmm transplant Mm -hmm. said quote uh the sets uh or uh he sets the idea of sir william's traditional scottish moors against a kind of surrealist calvinist dream world of screaming birds and sharp geometries i mean that's basically all all yeah i love in the courtyard in dunsinane when when the king is saying did he get here in time to fuck you i hope he did Mm -hmm. uh the background is almost dystopian impressionist it's just like big it's very stalker it's big cubes with fog rolling by them it's so yeah the fog is so indicative of a different time Mm -hmm. when uh older films didn't have as much control and they like didn't have as much money and didn't design things to be as controlled so things like fog would become like it would it would waft a little bit too much or something like that and it had a speed to it that was kind of uncanny and i think joel cohen probably had that control but he liked the uncanniness of like slow moving fog layered on top of fast moving fog, you know, and stuff like that stuff that you don't see that exists in real life. Right. Um, but yeah. Um, what else? Yeah. There's a lot of people returning, like we said, the first solo directorial effort by Joe Cohen. And, uh, as, uh, I think it was like Carter Burwell was talking about. It's like, it's fine. They're all fine, <laughs> but we'll see what Joel is like alone. And uh, all of his previous films have been obviously directed by both of them. But I didn't realize this. Ethan has been uncredited as the director. I knew that, but I mean, just the the, the amount of time that has passed since like uh, Ethan was on. Un- right? Ethan didn't go on. A- 2004. That's a long time that it hasn't been written and directed by Ethan and Joel Cohen. Um, So even though this is the first time that's true about Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's not the first time that it's actually on, you know, credits is that Uh, much in the same vein of like Roderick Janes and like they love to be fast. They love, they do not give a shit about credit. And they, in fact, Mm -hmm. I think it's a feather in their cap that they're like, no, the thing is the thing is just enjoy the thing. 
Mm-hmm. Edited by Roger yeah. Jaynes. Fargo says based on a true story. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all and fake. <laughs> kind of last big one, other than obviously the you know we mentioned the COVID stuff uh, because they it was completed at the start of the pandemic. Uh, yeah, the shooting in thirty six days or in thirty six days, days, but you can tell that they probably hustled it because they knew. Um, but in April two thousand twenty one, Scott Rudin, who is a name you probably are familiar with, because he uh, stepped down as producer, he was produced a lot of stuff a lot of academy award winners he's been one of the top producers like except for the marvel guy he's been like the number one guy for like 20 years but he is was taken out of this movie uh allegations of abuse obviously that are i think still pending so he's been kind of scott rudin who's been a longtime collaborator of the coen brothers and there was a i think it came out like a few months ago there was a you know article that didn't make wasn't very sympathetic to be honest of the coens and francis mcdormand talking about how like rudin's always been like a good guy you know Hmm. uh which is kind of what you do when you you work with a stable of actors and crew is usually ad hoc have their back you know right but they also were saying stuff like, but like, I could see it, you know? Oh shit. Okay. I couldn't, I couldn't, con- I like, I didn't know, but I could, you know, now that I, you say it, I could see it. And he was mostly focused on being just an absolute monster in the workplace. It wasn't necessarily that he was running like, you know, a ring of abuse or something like that, but it's still pretty enough that, he, you know, he's not working anymore. Yeah. And this is the first movie that that really came to pass. So, you know. R.I.P. I guess Rudin's career. Take that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Don't abuse people. Uh, yeah. How that? Blood begets uh, blood, my friend. But that was that was like the big stories around this production, uh, and have been for the last like eighteen months. Um, but that's also all I have for how do you do that? Worth a watch. Uh, I hope Joel does another so that we can gather to discuss it because I really do get a thrill out of everything that Cohen's touch. It's really something yeah. else. <laughs> this is a fun episode. Yeah. Uh, thank you for holding my hand through, you know, like Shakespeare, you know? Thank you. Thank and you. thank the listeners. Yes, and thank you. Thank everyone involved. I guess um, we're done. <laughs> The, the, yeah, little people, I think is what they say. That's right. Right? I want to thank the little people. And for this you can become a big person. A biggest bean. Over at patreon.com slash small beans, where you'll get access to a bunch of fancy shows that uh, don't show up on our free feed, such as Star Trek The Next Futurama and Spielboys bonus episodes of I'll Show You Mine If You Show Me Yours. Um, otherwise we'll see you around the free feed and we love you too so yeah and yeah. we'll be uh, back to our regular programming of these deep dives we'll probably do you know who knows what we'll do next to Stephen King an Anders son well Kings of King will return with season two uh, there have been some people asking so I do want to reassure them of that but I think we'll probably but you can't control me I do what I want we'll get a little further into Anderson's before we do that so we got Rushmore coming up but we had to sideline Magnolia when the Coens later. drop a nugget you know we Mm -hmm. can't say no to that that's how we end we're done thanks
This has been a Small Beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!